we are in Micah, and we sort of got halfway through chapter 6 last time. So I'm going to pick it up at 6-6, and then we'll just slide right on in. The background is God is talking to his people, and his question is, what have I done to you that you have scorned me? Is there something that I could or should have done that you're holding against me? You know, that kind of a question. And then voice switches here. At least in my translation, it's close quote at the end of verse 5. So verse 3, 4, and 5 is God speaking rhetorically to his people, asking, what more could I have done to keep you from going astray? And then verse 6 switches voices. And I am assuming that it's the voice of the prophet himself. Could be wrong, but that's what it feels like. So with verse 6, What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, old man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God? Speaking of that, I didn't talk about this last time because I wasn't prepared to, and I'm not much more prepared this time, but something just went through my mind. The stuff in the Torah about sacrifices and all that kind of stuff is an artifact of setting up the temple, obviously. And I looked up the other day Abraham, and the reason this is going through my mind, when we were talking about the binding of Isaac, on Shabbat, either this last week or the week before, I remember when. One of the rabbis I read said that Abraham had made altars, but had actually not sacrificed. So I looked it up, and in fact, that's correct. Abraham built altars wherever he went, but there isn't anything in the Torah about him actually sacrificing on those altars. So the first mention of the possibility of blood being shed on the altar is that of Isaac. And as I said on Shabbat, the word olah simply means lifted up. And olah in the Torah, in all of your translations, is translated as a burnt offering. It doesn't mean that. It means lifted up, totally dedicated without reservation, that kind of thing. It came to be an offering that was burned up and totally consumed on the altar. That's an artifact of the temple. And one of the things that God says, and I don't remember where, I would have looked it up, is, I never told you to sacrifice. And everybody says, what, 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 what? It says right there in the Torah. And the point I'm making is that an Ola is to demonstrate your total dedication without any reservation. The fact that it's burned seems to be an artifact of the temple service, of the tabernacle service. So when it says here in verse 7, will God be pleased with thousands of ram and 10,000 rivers of oil, 
that's something that was set up as part of the temple service. And of course, that also takes you to Psalm 51, where David is lamenting the unfortunate incident with Bathsheba. And David says, if it was going to take bulls and rams, I got a whole country full of them. But we both know that that isn't going to do it. The only thing you're going to accept from me is a broken and contrite heart. And I will parenthetically put in, it is not in the Hebrew, an Ola. In other words, I am lifting myself up to you without reservations. And the reason I'm talking about this is down in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Notice it doesn't say anything about following the temple rituals. It doesn't say anything about offerings, sacrifice, any of that kind of stuff. What God is doing is going back to basics, if you will, going back to Abraham, going back to the first call of the Hebrew people and saying, this is really all I want. One of the things that the Sunday church tends to do with that is to say, well, now that Yeshua has paid the price for our sins, there is no more blood sacrifice in the temple. And of course, that's true because there is no temple right now. However, we know from the book of Daniel, for example, that the temple will be rebuilt and blood sacrifices will resume. Because what happens, of course, is the man of sin comes in and stops the temple service. In order for that to happen, the temple service has to have been started up. And of course, as most of you are intimately familiar with, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem has got everything all set up. They're ready to go. So once they get access to the Temple Mount, there's going to be an altar go up, the Levites are all trained, the priests are all trained, they're ready to rock, and sacrifices will start up again. We've said this lots of times, one of the things that is important to understand is that those sacrifices in no way interfere with or cheapen or lessen the sacrifice of Yeshua because they're a completely different venue, completely different purpose, completely different order of priesthood. So as I read Micah 8, that takes me, as I say, back to Abraham and God saying all this other stuff that has been put together isn't really what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is a relationship with you where you do justice, you love kindness, chesed, and you walk humbly before me. That's what I'm looking for. The comment was the first time the word sacrifice shows up in Scripture, at least in her translation, is when Jacob and Laban are making their pact on the Golan Heights, or Gilead. Jacob flees from Laban, and Laban catches up with him, and they have a heart-to-heart conversation, and they set up a pillar and do a sacrifice there. It's the first time it shows up. Yet, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all chosen by God 
and walk with him. So, having said all that, moving on to verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear his name. Hear the rod of him who appointed it. I find this translation is a bit clumsy here. I'm in the English Standard Version. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. The rod is the chastening of God over the city which has fallen into apostasy. So what the prophet is saying is the Lord is crying out to you through the prophet and it is wisdom for you to pay attention to what I am saying because the Lord has a rod in his hand and if you don't repent, he is going to use the rod. Verse 10. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? All right. So what he's talking about are the sins of the city. And what he's saying is the treasures of wickedness are those things that are got dishonestly. And the scant measure, again, you go back to Torah, and it says you will not have two weights in your bag. A heavy one when you buy, a light one when you sell. So the idea is when you buy something, you use a heavy weight. So if you're buying a pound of flour and your weight weighs a tenth of a pound more, every time you buy flour, you're going to get a tenth of a pound or 10% extra. And then when you turn around and sell, instead of using that same weight, you have a second weight, which is a tenth of a pound light. And so when you sell, you weigh out the flour on a scale and you use the light weight, which means that you're giving your customer 10% less. So you have a 10% swing each way, and those are the treasures of wickedness. The idea that you've been cheating each other, you haven't been dealing honestly, and so forth, is what he's talking about. And when it says, can I forget any longer the treasures of what... So what's happened is he has let it go for a while in the hopes that a prophet will get him straightened out and so forth, and that hasn't happened. It's finally gotten right up to here, and God says, enough. 11. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? That's what I just explained. Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Not only are they crooked in their business dealings, they are also not truthful in their interpersonal dealings. The idea, obviously, is God's message is pretty consistent. And not only that, but people are consistent. So we tend to fall into the same sins and the same errors, and our societies become corrupt in pretty much the same way. So if you have a prophet that is going to a city at different times with different populations, it is not at all surprising that the message will be Pretty much the same. 
Verse 13, Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. All right, now this is God obviously striking them because remember we just talked about the one who bears the rod. Hear of the rod and him who appointed it. So the rod is the chastening, him who appointed it is God. And of course the rod that he is going to use is depending on whether you're talking about the northern or the southern kingdom, either Babylon or Assyria. So now when he says down in 13, therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins, then 14 through 16 are a description of what being desolate is. So 14, you shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve. What you preserve, I will give to the sword. So the idea is putting away but not preserving is your crops will come in, you will store them up, and basically they'll rot. So the stuff that you think you are saving up will rot. The stuff that you actually manage to preserve so that it doesn't rot, I'm going to give to the sword, which is to say the rod that I am sending down from the north, whether the Assyrians or the Babylonians, are going to take the food that you've actually preserved. So the combination of your food rotting and that that you actually preserve getting taken by an invader is, again, how the hunger is going to be implemented. Because the first thing you said before is you're going to be hungry. Well, why are we going to be hungry? Because you're not going to be able to save any food. Verse 15, you shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri, all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. All right, back up a second. Omri and Ahab. Everybody knows who Ahab was. He's the husband of Jezebel. He was king of the northern kingdom, and his father was Omri. So Omri's the guy that founded the dynasty that included Ahab. And what Omri was, was a military commander. And a whole bunch of intrigue. King is going to war. One of his commanders takes him out. So assassinates him. I don't remember the guy's name. He doesn't last very long. Then that guy says, I'm king. Omri comes and takes that guy out for having usurped the kingdom. The people then turn and said, hey, Omri, you be king. Unfortunately, it was only half of the people that said, hey, Omri, you be king. There was the other half who said to somebody else, and I don't remember his name again, he didn't last very long either, you be king. And so that there was then a civil war in which Omri prevailed. So that's how Omri became king. He killed the military commander who whacked the previous king. Then... He was acclaimed by king as half the people, and he suppressed the other half so that he became the only king. 
And then he sired Ahab, who, as I say, was the husband of Jezebel. And the thing about Jezebel is that she brought down the priests of Baal to the northern kingdom. And, of course, the story of that is where Elijah slaughters 500 of the guys. But that's what's being talked about here. Neither Omri nor Ahab is a good guy. So anyway, one of the things, of course, that Ahab is famous for, or infamous for, depending on what adjective you want to use, is he, in fact, does condone bearing false witness, deceitfulness, we're back up in verse 12, Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So you remember when Ahab wants a vineyard and the owner of the vineyard refuses to sell, what Jezebel does is frames the guy for blasphemy and drags in a bunch of false witnesses and gets the guy stoned. And of course, once he's out of the picture, then the vineyard becomes open, and Ahab goes ahead and takes it, as opposed to saying to his wife, what do you got, cornflakes for brains? So that's what we're talking about, this kind of thing that's being spoken of. So now all the way down to chapter 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. Not sure who the voice is here. I'm going to suspect that it's probably the prophet again. And what he is obviously saying is he has become as summer fruit when it has been gathered. So what he's talking about is wanting to go and get something to eat, but somebody has taken it away. He's not talking about summer fruit that has been stored up and turned into jam or whatever you do with it, and he's then going to go eat that fruit. What he's saying is, I have become as when summer fruit has been gathered, and there's nothing for me to eat. And you all know the Torah. The Torah specifically says that if there's produce in the field, standing grain, grapes on the vine, figs, all that kind of stuff, that people wandering by may eat of it. What it says also is you cannot fill your basket. So as you're walking by and you're hungry and it's lunchtime and you see a fig tree, you can walk over there, pluck a fig, eat it, and keep going. You can't harvest the tree. And of course, that should take you to Yeshua when he and his disciples are walking through a grain field and they're plucking heads of grain Neither Yeshua nor his disciples own that grain field. That belongs to somebody. But what they're doing is absolutely in concert with Torah, which says if you walk through a field like that and you're hungry, you can go ahead and pick some and eat it and keep going. just can't harvest it. So what the prophet is saying here is the fields have been harvested and there's nothing left for me to glean, which is to say I am empty. Two, the godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Does this sound like 
something that's going on right now. As you read this, you should sort of think of our Philistine capital city. Go back to something I said earlier. People don't change. Their pathologies don't change. God's law doesn't change. So the words of the prophet, which are spoken into a specific situation, wind up being applicable for all time. And so as you read this, just let your mind go over what our situation is right now. And you'll find, oh, wow, that sounds like us. The sins that we fall into are the same sins that everybody else has fallen into. And that's why God periodically has to come in here and jerk everybody up short and reset things. Verse 3, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. So what they are is really, really good at doing evil. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. Verse 4. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. In Judges, there's a speech where the sons of Gideon are all slain by his bastard son. Remember, Gideon had like 70 sons by legitimate folks, and then he kept a honey down at Shechem where he would go to conduct business while he was a judge. And he sired a child on her who was a bastard. So she was a concubine as opposed to a wife. And when Gideon died, this guy, the bastard, went and slew all of his half-brothers, except one. One of them escaped. And that one stands up on top of the hill over Shechem and gives this speech about the trees who are trying to appoint a king over themselves. So they speak to an olive tree and say, will you be king? No, 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 I'm busy. I'm producing olives and the oil makes everybody glad and makes martinis palatable and all that kind of stuff. And then to the fig, then to the vine. So anyway, they ask the olive, the fig, and the grapevine, and all of them say, we got more important things to do than rule over you. So the next thing they do is ask the bramble. And the bramble says, uh, I want you to know what's going to happen if I rule over you. It ain't going to be good. And they say, oh, no, 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 we need a king anyway. So they choose the bramble, and indeed, things are not good. So the idea back here in Micah of saying the best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them is a thorn hedge. The people who are reading this would know the story of Gideon, would know the story of the speech of his surviving son, So he's talking to them in metaphors that they will understand. The metaphor is clear to us as well, but to the people who are hearing this, it would have been doubly so. So all the way down to verse 5. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own house. 
And not to put too fine a point on it, but there was a young lady who turned her mother in for being at the rally. And her mother got fired. Lost her job of 15 years. She was, I believe, a nurse. So we are living all of this stuff. And with the talk in the media of we got to re-educate all the conservatives and we got to do all that kind of stuff. The idea of being afraid who you talk to is very current. During the Cold War, some kid turned his parents in and they were executed. And the kid was made a hero. To keep beating the horse, there's nothing new. That's what Ecclesiastes says. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that's happening has happened before. You can see it right here. Let's read 5 down through 7. So we have it all in one swell hoop. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago on Shabbat. One of the things that David talks about in the Psalms, which is why I read them, is even though an army is camped around me, I will trust in the Lord and I will not be afraid. And as I said at the time, when an army is camped around David, it's a real army. It's not a make-believe, pretend army. And he's got real Philistine enemies, and they're really trying to kill him. And what he says is, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to trust in the Lord. And as we live through this junk that we have just seen described here in Micah 7, read the Psalms of David where he talks about his attitude when he has got enemies all around him. They're wonderful. One of the things that I do before I go to bed at night is I will reflect back on one of those psalms and I sleep like a baby. So anyway, I recommend him. Verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and he executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who has said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes shall look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. One of the things that I am fond of saying to my dear wife, as we look at the situation in our country right now, there are no permanent victories, there are no permanent defeats. The only time there is a permanent defeat is when you give up. Fortunes come and go, people come and go, the Lord is constant. And so what he is saying is, don't rejoice over me because I'm down right now. God is taking care of me for my sins. And I have sins that need to be taken care of, and God's taking care of that. But once God is finished with that, then 
you will vindicate me, and you who are on top now will find yourselves trampled down like the mire of the streets. Verse 11, a day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river. The river there is the river Euphrates. So this idea of Egypt to the river goes back to the original land grant that God made to Abraham. From sea to sea and from mountain to mountain till the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. So what he's saying is, I am going to regather Israel. Their boundaries will be extended. However, those who oppress them will themselves be oppressed. The idea the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. So because of what they have done, God will take care of them. Verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest, in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. In other words, those who are now mocking you when they see what God is going to do for and with you, they are not going to have a word to say. Understand, being patient is sometimes really difficult and often painful. Now, the promises will come, the cycle will continue, and whether I personally see that cycle continue is irrelevant as far as the cycle itself. The cycle will be what it is. As I've said in the past, the half-life of big empires is about 200, 250 years, which is where we are. So, we'll see. Verse 16 again. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. In other words, they will be ashamed of their might, the fact that they have used their strength against you. So their might will not do them any good. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Notice they shall turn in dread to the Lord. That's a theme that has happened before, because remember when we talked about earlier, the law shall go forth from Zion, which was back in, I think, five. For whom will it go forth? For the nations. So the idea that the nations say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord where we can learn his ways is being echoed down here. So they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. Verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. Now, a couple of things about that. As somebody once said in one of these 
Christian sound bites that people say, God's in charge, that kind of stuff. Um, somebody once said, God can't use a dirty vessel, which means that you got to get yourself cleaned up. Well, getting cleaned up is a wonderful thing, but if God can't use a dirty vessel, he's out of luck. Because that's all he's got to work with. That's us. So these little Christian catchphrases like that, you need to listen to them critically. Take them with a grain of salt. So what it's saying here is God will pardon iniquity and pass over the transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. In other words, his inheritance is Israel. And in order to get Israel back, in order to put them in the land, in order to make them a mighty nation, there's some stuff he is going to have to pardon. And that's what the prophet is saying. And I just love this next phrase. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And I said this either in Midrash or in a sermon the last couple, three weeks, is you have God's justice and God's mercy. Both of them are real. But God's mercy is ever so slightly stronger than his justice. That's what we depend on. That his mercy can trump his justice because it is ever so slightly stronger. He really wants to be merciful if you give him a chance. Now, don't get me wrong. He will chasten you when you sin. Your circumstances will be such that if you are his and you sin, he will chasten you. But that's different than what he's talking about with the wicked. He chastens Israel. He punishes them. He sends them into exile. He scatters and does all that kind of stuff, which he does. But once he's done it, his anger is gone. And his steadfast love takes over. He never destroys them completely. Verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Now, one of the things I like about this is it should take you back to the gospel. Because remember when Yeshua is duking it out with the Pharisees and says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living which says that those patriarchs still exist. And he's saying here, you will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So the idea of showing steadfast love to Abraham is still operative because Abraham still lives. He's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living as I've been saying all along. It's not like Micah has just all of a sudden gotten a fresh revelation from the Lord that God's not going to destroy his people. That goes clear back to Moses. It is a recurring theme throughout prophecy that, yeah, it's going to be rough if you violate my covenant, but I'm never going to destroy you completely. He's a contemporary of Isaiah. And he sounds very much like Isaiah, quite frankly which isn't at all surprising because, as I say, 
the message goes clear back to Moses. Never changes. Shama